This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 65 of the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm talking to Adam Lieb, CEO, inventor, entrepreneur, and we will be discussing tips and tricks to help you write distraction-free. But first, to last week's question, which was, how do you spend the holidays? Of course, this year the holidays are a bit bizarre, and so I I just, yeah, I wanted to bring a bit of festive cheer and, and see what you guys are going to do. So Bobby Ann Atwood said, this year the holidays look so different, but one thing that is staying the same is a tradition I brought to my kids from when I was little, cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. Oh, I love that. I love a cinnamon roll. I love cinnamon in general. I love the smell of it. I love the taste of it. Uh, we have like a Christmas candle that has cinnamon in it and I'm it's it's like crack to me. <laughs> I love sniffing it more than anything. Um, anyway, back to Bobby. Bobby says, it's not only a fun treat for them, it's also a sneaky mum trick to keeping the kids from coming downstairs too early. The tradition is that they don't come downstairs until they smell the cinnamon rolls baking. I still get up around seven to start baking, but it's a quieter start and makes for an easier morning. We open the presents after the kids are, have sufficiently stuffed their faces and mummy too. Oh, I love that. I love that tradition. Um, so Ian Worrell says, uh, well, he's given me a long list of dates that are, uh, sound like he has crazy, crazy shift work. Um, so yeah, I, well, that sounds a bit rubbish in terms of all of the on and off, on and off, on and off. Um, but Ian says with a family on, uh, British Columbia, uh, in British Columbia and Ontario, uh, if it's permitted, I will likely have Christmas dinner with friends here in Nova Scotia. On Christmas Eve, I'll probably watch movies, read other days off, I'll work on my goals for the new year. And so that brings me very, very well to this week's question which is, what are your goals for 2021? Um, I am just in the midst of uh, finalising mine. I am I am doing something controversial uh, for at least for the start of next year and basically not planning. Um, I just feel like every time I make a plan and then I can't follow through with the plan, it gets me really um, upset and disappointed. And so fuck it, I'm just not going to plan. I've got a big old list of goals and projects that I want to complete in 2021. And I'm just gonna pick them off one at a time, uh, focus on one thing, one project and try and work. I think I mentioned this last week, but I um, realize that I work much better in short, sharp, intense bursts. So if I can like back to back those bursts, but on different project areas, I should, in theory, be able to continue to work at a higher rate. I mean, obviously this is all <laughs> dependent on COVID and schools shutting, and I'm pretty sure the schools are gonna shut in January. Um, so God knows what I'll actually be able to do. But there in lies the reason I'm not gonna plan because I don't know what time I'm gonna have in January or February or, you know, November -ary 
whatever month next year. So anyway, book recommendation of the week is Here is the Beehive by Sarah Crossan. Now I read a book by Sarah uh, a long time ago actually, uh, one of her young adult uh, dystopian novels and I really enjoyed it although I never finished the series and um, I saw this book and it was also recommended to me by uh, some friends and I picked it up and I read it and oh wow. So this book is written in, I, I guess, I guess stanzas and in poetry format, but it is definitely a novel um, and I read it in one go. It was stunning. It was beautiful. It would, the, the the prose was beautiful or the poetry was beautiful. It was harrowing. The ending was harrowing. Um, oh, it was lovely. And um, yeah, I, I really recommend it just because it's so unusual. And um, it's about a woman um, who is having an affair with a client. She's a lawyer. And this is not a spoiler because uh, this is where the book starts, but he dies in an accident and she has nobody to help her through her grief um and so it's just about you know it's about grief and grieving and how she deals with that and it was it was truly amazing and one of the better books I've read this year so yeah here is the beehive by Sarah Crossan all right so in personal update I recommended Monsters last week by Emerald Fennel and I just wanted to come back to that recommendation I now I do still recommend the book uh, but for me personally it had a disappointing ending and I just felt it was only fair because um, I did recommend the book before I'd finished it lesson learnt there Sasha um, I want I felt it was important that I come back and tell you how I felt at the end of the book so the reasons I still recommend the book are it's incredibly voicey it's um the it's this is the middle grade book uh written for adults so it has two 12 and 13 year olds um who are essentially psychopaths um and so it's it's dark it's got dark humor highly highly recommend it for um the characterization and the voice however i didn't really like the ending and i felt it you know, I knocked a good couple of stars off for the ending. It just, it ended abruptly. I didn't feel satisfied with the ending. I don't know what I wanted from the ending, but it wasn't that. So yes, I just wanted to come back uh, on that recommendation from last week. So as I record this, it is December the 18th. My son finished school yesterday um, after a whole four days at school this month. <laughs> lucky me and uh, so he is now on the school holidays and I really want to not do stacks of work whilst uh, we are on Christmas holidays I would like to do fun bits of work <laughs> bits that I want to do um, so I am trying to finish scheduling a bunch of stuff and uh, finish off like the bits of freelance work that I have to do uh, so that I can more or less take uh, you know as many days off as I possibly can I will inevitably have to do some work over the holidays and I would also like to work on the scent of death so like this is my treat I want to work on the scent of death uh, during the holidays so like I'm sure many like when I had a day job that is what I treated myself to was like writing the stuff I wanted to write and I am absolutely fucking desperate to write this book especially after having spoken to Jeff Elkins on the Dialogue Doctor and I will share the link when that is out I think it's not out until February um 
but yeah, so I am about to put it on my Kindle today to read the 10,000 words that I already have. And then I'm going to dive in because why the fuck not? Um, what else? Oh, yes. So this week I... So we do, I do accountability every Monday morning in my Facebook group, Rebel Authors, and it's to help you guys be accountable, to help keep you on track, um, to give you a forum to, yeah, for, for people to hold you to account. And I do it every week. And this week <laughs> I had a ridiculously long to-do list. And you know how much I've done? Fucking nothing. I, I have, I have done loads of work this week. Let me just clarify um but what i did was i chose to finish a project uh, in the four days that my son was at school so i edited the entire of trey in four days and i am about to send it to my critique partner so i am super excited because it means i finished another another thing by the end of this year and my i guess my theme for this year was finishing shit um so yeah i am like super buzzed off my tits because i finished another project and also it was Trey, which is the book that nearly fucking killed me. So I am even more happy uh, that I have finished uh, this book. And I have been reflecting on this and I wondered, like, I maybe this will be helpful for you guys, I don't know. Um, but I think the reasons that I have found it so hard is uh, twofold. The first one is I have, I have developed. So obviously lots of us try and develop our writing and um, I study intentionally and very hard to improve my prose, my characterization, my descriptions, all the rest of it. And three books into this series, my writing has changed dramatically. But when you write a series, you have to stay consistent. So one of the things that I have been finding difficult is to continue to write in the voice of this series when my heart wants to write in a different voice. And that is why I'm going off to write The Scent of Death before I write the final book in this series. Um, so yeah, I think, I think when you develop, you know, like the series, and it's also accepting the series for what it is, which is tropey, it's, you know, um, pulp, more pulp fiction than it is, you know, literary fiction. And so it's just a fun, guilt, guilty pleasure type read. It's not, you know, the most poetically brilliant anything. And, you know, I have to be okay with that. And, but also because, yeah, look, I am stumbling over my words because you can tell I am still processing and trying to come to terms with what this series is. Um, and I love it. I do love it. But yeah, anyway, let me move on. So the second thing is um, I had some comments uh, from people who will remain nameless and those comments I let get to me and it stopped me writing for a while and this was particularly whilst I was writing Trey and I think that you know mindset is something that we have to constantly work on and I am always trying to be honest with you guys and you know even I have to work on my mindset because I am only human and sometimes comments get to me and I let some comments get to me and I need to let go of them. I need to remember that the only thing I control is my own thoughts. And yeah, like obviously these are comments about, um, they weren't like negative review comments. They were just comments. Uh, I can't really, uh, anyway, they were comments and it bothered me and I let them bother me and it, it, it got associated with Trey. So yes, 
I am busting through those comments, busting through the mindset and finishing shit as we round off 2020. So the last couple of things that I'm going to be doing this year are testing my audio booth. I'm just literally, I'm going to finish recording this uh, episode and then I'm going to go out and do some audio test recordings in my booth and working on Trey, I'm going to try and finish, uh, you know, half a dozen books before the end of the year. Um, because I do love to reach my net, my Goodreads goals. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably it. The next episode is going to be a solo show. Um, I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet, but hopefully it's going to be useful for you guys. Um, yeah. So that's it. Um, let's move on to listener rebel of the week. Okie dokie. So listener of the week this week, listener rebel of the week this week is Justina Aland. Justina says, my first boyfriend in high school showed his true colours after about a year of dating. He suddenly had a problem with the way I dressed. I dressed in alternative fashion, basically mostly black, emo or punk style. He told me that I was dressing too dark. I ignored him and dressed the way I wanted to. It escalated when he would tell me I was dressing too sexy and accuse me of dressing to get other men's attention. He would then, uh, he would even tell me that my athletic shorts and athletic tights, which every other girl in the school wore for sports, were too slutty. Skinny jeans and fitted shirts were too sexy because they were form-fitting. Even loose t-shirts were too sexy because in his eyes, they made my boobs look bigger. I know this sounds ridiculous, but he was a conservative Christian guy and this all built up over the two years I was with him, so it wasn't so ridiculous when I was going through it. I wish I could end this story with um, that I stood up for myself and put him in his place, but unfortunately I didn't. I broke up with him feeling pretty sad and deflated and defeated, sorry, from all the criticism. But my rebellion is that I still dress the way I want, and I even occasionally dress sexy too, like actually sexy, not normal clothing that my ex thinks is sexy. I won't ever let anybody tell me how I should look anymore. I love this rebellion because it is about empowerment. It's about doing what's right for you and not listening to any shit that uh, other people say. And so, yes, I love this. And um, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, then please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. Please do send in your rebellions. We are low on rebellions, so I do need you guys to send me some. Um, you can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons today, but a huge enormous santery type thank you to all of my patrons old and new alike you guys help to keep the podcast running and you give me all the feels in my belly and my cold dead heart so thank you i will be giving you a little extra something uh, before the year is out so look out uh, for that on patreon okay let's get on with the show Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Adam Lieb. Adam is the CEO and co-founder of Astro House, an MIT graduate, product designer and inventor of FreeWrite line of distraction-free writing tools. Hello, Adam. Hello, Sasha. 
Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. I have followed uh, the free write for a while. I did see the first version of the free write come out. I saw a few of my writing friends get one, um, but I always felt it was really chunky. So I was really interested when the traveler uh, came out. And so, yeah, I, I guess we'll get into all of that. But first of all, can you tell everyone a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, how far back should we go? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's keep it within within the hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, well, I'll start with the company Astro House was created around the product originally called Hemingwright um, that we launched in December of 2014 on a Kickstarter. And that product took off. We raised about 200000 in the first 20 hours of the campaign. Um, we were you know, sort of floored by that experience. And since then, we have just been working hard on it. We spent all of 2015, you know, doing product development. We started shipping that product in 2016. Um, in the last few months, we reached a major milestone, which is we, we have had 100 million words written on free write devices worldwide. In 2018, the end of 2018, we launched the free write Traveler, which is our, you know, big new successor um, that's small uh, to the free ride product, which is um, something we're super excited about and have spent, you know, every, every moment of the last couple of years almost already um, doing product development and trying to get that product into mass manufacturing and shipping to our many thousands of uh, pre-order customers. And so, yeah, that's, that's the short story, I guess. I mean, before that, I, graduated with a mechanical engineering degree, focused on product design. Um, I worked in finance. I had a, another small startup before this in nutrition and, you know, somehow found my way back to product design properly and uh, thrilled to be here. So why, and this, I haven't prepped you for this, so I apologize, but it's just my curiosity. <laughs> um, but why writers? Why, why products for writers? I was very curious to know what, you know, because as a designer, I'm sure like the whole world is your oyster. Like every industry, every remit of people, you know, are your targets, I suppose. So yeah, what made, what drew you to writing and, and writers? It was really the product concept that got me excited. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, not many people look to writers as the perfect target market. You know, writers, I think, um, are usually cast as, you know, don't have a lot of disposable income or, you know, um, not always looking to buy the newest, greatest things. So, you know, in that sense, maybe we didn't go uh, very traditionally um, down a traditional route. But I think, you know, we were captured by the original concept of making a distraction-free writing tool. And it just sort of had all the right elements that I was looking for to work on something. I mean, sort of simple as that. I mean, it was physical, it had software, it had um, sort of a social context, I think, of you know, sort of trying to fight back against distraction. Again, this was back in 2014, so you kind of have to put you know, your mind back into that time. And yeah, people were talking about distraction, but I think, we were really had the, we had very good timing. And I, and I sort of felt that, you know, like it just felt like it was starting to enter into the, the consciousness of society about, you know, how are we, you know, managing our own attention? How are we mm. fighting against distraction? How do we, do we even know that 
there are these apps, there are these companies, there are products that are constantly fighting for our, our attention and actually winning. And so unless we actually take an active role in managing our own attention, then we're going to lose. And so at that time, it just felt like it had the makings of all the things that I was really excited about. And, and also I thought it was a perfect thing that if it caught on, we could put it on Kickstarter. And I think, you know, as a creator, you know, I'd always wanted to do something with Kickstarter. I just was sort of enamored with the platform and never really had the right idea or the right time or, you know, whatever it was, but this sort of had all of those, all of those pieces. So uh, have you read Cal Newport's Deep Work? Because I'm a real fan of like distraction free and, you know, focus on, uh, focusing and, and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, if you haven't, I'm sure you'd love it because it's all in I, this. In yeah, this I know, I know of it. I haven't read it. Um, but I think a lot of the concepts have been told to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is yeah. It is a good book. Okay, so it was a great segue because I'd love to know more about distraction. I mean, I, from a personal point of view, know why distraction is so bad for me. Uh, but what do you, I mean, have you looked into the science of it? Like, why is distraction so bad for people who are trying to be productive? Yeah, we have a little bit. I mean, there's there's been some research. I think there was, an, there was um, a study done out of UC Irvine that said, something like for every distraction, it took about 25 minutes to get back to the task at hand. And so, you know, obviously, if you are trying to be focused, then something's going to take you 25 minutes to get back into what you were working on, then that's a big problem. I think of it as, I mean, I don't, I don't think you need a lot of data or science to tell you that distraction is a problem. I think, you know, when we think about any creative endeavor, and I think writing is actually probably the most you know, emblematic of, of how important it is to be focused. But I think any creative endeavor, like you're really trying to stay in a world or first you're actually trying to create a world and then you're trying to stay in it. You know, and I think with writing and, I, and I'm not, I'm not a professional writer or even an amateur writer. <laughs> so I, I can only sort of speak to this, you know, from the outside, but I think, I think when, when writers, especially creative writers are working, they're trying to create a world. They're trying to you know, stay in that world and really try to like feel all of the different experiences that they're creating through those words, you know, and it's more than just, um, you know, dialogue or, or, you know, a, a location that, that a character is in, but it's really creating this world. And I think pulling, getting pulled out of that into the real world or whatever's going on around us is really, you know, that's, that's, that is the problem. And I think like, beyond just, you know, putting the right, the words in the right order and picking the perfect world, I think being able to kind of set yourself into that world and keep you there as long as possible is really sort of one of the main challenges of, of writing and creative writing in particular. And I think, so that's, you know, that's sort of how we think about the challenges with distractions and writing, especially creative writing. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I couldn't agree more. And I, I forget, I think it's Carol Oates, but... Um... Someone I am sure will correct me if I am wrong. Uh, she did one of the the masterclasses, you know, the very famous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I believe it's her that says um, that interruptions are the killer of creativity. And I know from personal experience, certainly through lockdown and this whole Corona stuff, and having people in my space now constantly, twenty four hours a day. Like I have my six year old and my my partner. It's been incredibly hard to keep that focus let alone having you know distractions pinging up on my uh, screens or whatever 
Okay, I wanted to ask about uh, Indiegogo, which you used to um, help fund the platform, a bit like Kickstarter, to help fund your product creation. It's not something that many writers use, with the exception probably of uh, Brandon Sanderson, who did use Kickstarter rather than Indiegogo, but recently, um, and I don't know, I think he, it was about seven million in the end, seven million dollars he raised for his Way of Kings um, campaign. But um, I wanted to ask, what lessons have you learned about making a campaign successful using those those Indiegogo and Kickstarter-like platforms? Well, a lot of lessons. I think this would take a lot longer than our podcast time. But, <laughs> um, you know, I've run three campaigns, two of them successful, one of them not. Um, and I'm, you know, I think a lot of campaign creators don't want to talk about their unsuccessful ones. But, you know, it was an important learning experience. And so we... Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one, I think the biggest thing is making sure that your campaign is right for the platform. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that aren't going to do well because the people that are on that platform are not interested in those types of things. That doesn't mean that that business might not be successful otherwise. But I think, you know, there's certain things, I mean, software is a great example. Like the great majority of software, games excluded, are not a good, you know, are not a good candidate for crowdfunding. There's just not enough people that are really willing to put up the money ahead of time before someone has something to show for it. And so I think that that's sort of tricky. Um, you know, so I think that there's, there's, there's certain types of things and campaigns that are really well-suited for crowdfunding. Um, you know, in the difference between Indiegogo and Kickstarter is sort of, you know, murky and getting a little bit more gray over time. I think, you know, Kickstarter generally has a larger audience, but they're maybe a little bit more design focused. Indiegogo is a little bit more of like, they're a little more willing to be more of like an e-commerce platform. So, I mean, there's sort of trade-offs to each one. I think, um, you know, for us, you know, like I said, the biggest things are really making sure that you have a product or, or a campaign that's good for crowdfunding. And then the second most important thing is make sure you do the work ahead of the time and not, not, going in, not falling into the trap of if you build it, they will come because that's just not how it works. You really have to spend the time and energy doing a lot of pre-campaign marketing. So you know, if you don't, I mean, I suppose it could work, but you're taking a lot of risk, a lot of unnecessary risk as well. It's so interesting that you say this because I did a food shop before I came on this podcast and I was listening to a podcast that was talking about uh, digital course creation. And they literally word for word almost said what you have just said, which is don't build your course until you have the sales. Do pre-sales and give your, you know, as long as you tell people when it's coming and you continue an, an open line of communication, people will wait for whatever it is that you're selling. Um, but don't build your course and spend all of that time creating it until you know that you have an audience, which, um, and this is from a person who is also an entrepreneur. So <laughs> Like, really should listen to these lessons. So yeah, yeah, I love that you have just echoed what um this other person said as well. Okay, as an entrepreneur, another fabulous segue. Um, what do you think are the three most important skills you have cultivated uh, over your journey? Well, I think resilience is 
probably all three, but for the sake of interest, I'll try to, <laughs> I'll probably just keep going. I think, you know, I think resilience is number one. And then sort of related to that is like when to quit and when to keep going. So I think, you know, I mean, the problem is like we as people are surrounded by non-experts and even so-called experts don't even really know because some things are not able to be known until they're actually tried. And so, you know, you get a lot of feedback from people that, you know, their, their opinion's not really that valuable. And so how do you know when, how do you know when your idea is good? How do you know when, when it's terrible? How do you know when, you know, you should just lay it down and, and try something else or take a break or, you know, fire someone or hire someone, you know, I mean, these things are really tough. And I think like, you know, a lot of it is just experience. That's how you start to know it, but it, it's almost like you sort of start knowing yourself and you build that confidence to know when you should be doing these things. Um, but like resilience is the thing that keeps you personally going past those lessons. Like some people just learn that lesson, you know, when to quit, they learn it the hard way, i.e. they don't quit <laughs> and then they burn out and then they're forced to quit. And then they're like, well, this is not for me. And it's like, well, okay, then it's not for you. So, um, you know, that's, that's, I think to me, the crux of entrepreneurship. I, I, it's really about pushing through. It's about, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it, you have to just keep, keep pushing through and take, take the good with the bad and, you know, everything's learning experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can, I can agree more with that. I like the, the good things and the bad things are, are learning experiences. And speaking of which, um, what was the biggest mistake you've made in business and what did you like learn from that? I, I, I love to draw, um, from people in other industries for writers, especially, um, in, in my kind of audience, as we are, predominantly indie authors which means we're doing everything independently and are entrepreneurs in a sense and so yeah I'd love to know like from your industry like you know a mistake that you, that you made that you learned from yeah I mean this is I'm actually so curious on how this could even be applied to writing because you know maybe you can tell me this but <laughs> um you know I'll say that the company I started before Astro House was a nutritional supplement brand um, and I'd come out of a, you know, a corporate gig and sort of had an idea of like, you know, I'll just do everything right. You know, one of these ideas like, oh, I've seen how it's done. Like, I'll just do all the right things and, you know, make this great product and people will just buy it. And, you know, I think I just made like this, these classic set of errors coming from like a corporate job, thinking that, you know, you can, when you see the result, you can also see sort of what makes up that result not realizing like when you start from scratch, there's sort of an infinite variety of decisions and things that have to go into, um, you know, making something that's successful. And it's not that it's sort of, it's easy to go one way, but very hard to go the other. And so this is sort of like, I mean, this is also why people like don't understand why entrepreneurship is hard because everything we see around us is sort of the you know, is already successful. And so we see like, oh, why it's successful because yeah, it's easy to see like, oh, that restaurant has great food or has great service or like, you know, this product is really easy to use. But we don't actually understand like when you start from zero, it's very hard to like know what are the, what are the right ingredients to get to something that's marketable. 
And so, you know, I think the biggest mistake that I made, which was, you know, not doing those things, which is like, I didn't pre-sell my first product. I didn't, um, it was also, I mean, it was, it was something that was not, actually, this, this is sort of interesting. I mean, like, I don't think I was getting on any kind of trend. And I think that's really hard, actually. You know, as a, as a product designer, you kind of want to be like, I think as an immature product designer, as I was, and probably still am, um, I wanted to just like make my own trend. And I think that is a recipe for disaster. Like, there is no making your own trends. Like, that takes a lot of time and a lot of work and probably a lot of money, but really a lot of time. I think that's the thing that's hardest to really grasp. I mean, it may take 10 years for a trend to really like pick up to the point where you actually start seeing it in like, in like the consumer, like general society. And so you don't see those first 10 years. Um, so I was coming out with a product that really didn't have a trend attached to it. I was kind of like, it was kind of like kind of paleo. It was kind of this, it was kind of natural. It was kind of, you know, I'm talking about vitamin nutrition here, but like, I think it applies to pretty much any product. You know, if you don't have a trend that you're riding, like it's really hard for people to answer the question of like, why would I care? You know, and you have to have some of these things that are buzzwords. And I think like the hardest thing for people to understand is like, what is, what even is a buzzword? Well, like a buzzword is like a shortcut for you as a product designer to like instill a whole lot of meaning to a human, <laughs> right? To your potential customer with just a word or two. And I think like as a product designer, like that is actually the hardest thing is like, how do you create something that speaks to someone else? It's like, you don't have a lot to work with. And so, you know, like you have to sort of rely on these, like these words that, these words that are really trends um, or trends that are really words uh, that are, that are a lot more meaningful than just like the word in its literal form. And so I don't know how in any way that applies to books or writing. And I'm curious because like, you know, for an author, I have to think like, I don't know, I, I, I would imagine, well, I don't know, I, like are indie authors more focused on writing a commercial success or are they more focused on, I'm just going to write, you know, my art, you know, I don't know. Okay. So I was grinning like an idiot throughout like, the <laughs> entire time you were talking because I was like, oh my God, it's exactly the same. <laughs> so, um, oh, everything you said is so utterly relatable for me. So it, it's pretty much summed up in what you said at the end there. So you can do one of two things. You can either write to market, and that's what we call it, uh, where you hone in very specifically on one very niche genre. You go and you do all of your research. You learn all of the tropes, the key buzzwords, the tropes, the things that yep. readers are expecting in that genre. And you ensure that you put those into your story and then you deliver exactly what they want. And you know how you were talking about, um, you know, what you don't have much to hang it on. What is it that you're trying to sell? Well, in those genres, those niche genres, when you're writing to market, you are selling the trope. You are, you are selling the emotional experience that those readers will expect to get from that trope. So, and, and a lot of newer authors, me included, fuck up on their first book because they don't write to market. And 
the thing is, as an indie author, we have that freedom and that liberty to choose whether or not we want to write to market. And you don't have to, but you make it a darn sight harder for yourself, uh, marketing and sell-wise, if you don't write to market. So, um, yeah, like, it, you know, it, it's so much harder to define who it is that you are trying to sell your book or your story to. So it is exactly the same uh, in that sense. And I do think that uh, the, the not sticking to one clear genre is very common in first, first even second books uh, with a lot of writers. So yeah, I love that that mistake translates perfectly to to our industry and it just goes to show that so many of the the principles of business and the principles of entrepreneurship really are they transcend like industry um yeah i love that i love that okay you are the ceo and founder of astro house a company designing distraction free writing gadgets so would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about your product and how it's useful to writers sure so the product we're talking about is the Freeride Traveler. So this is the product that we initially launched on Indiegogo and um, are now about to start shipping here in the end of September, early October. Um, and so we're obviously super excited about that. And um, so what, what is the product? The product is what we call it a distraction free writing tool. And this is building off of our existing freeride product that again i think i mentioned we launched all the way back in december 2014 on a kickstarter campaign so what's what's different about it is that it's a modern digital device that's wholly and entirely designed for writing and so what is not important for writing writing is taken off and what is important for writing is improved and so we have a really great on the, on the traveler we have sort of the best possible scissor, scissor switch style laptop keyboard. Um, it has about two and a half millimeters of travel, whereas I think most Macs are now up to one point something. So, you know, much more travel, which is sort of the big complaint with laptop keyboards. Um, it has an e-ink screen. So this is the same exact screen that's in a Kindle. So you can write outside. It has that really great contrast. It looks like paper. Um, and it's small, it's about 1.5 pounds, it's easily portable. And the best thing about it is it's completely distraction free. So there's no browser, there's no email, there's no notifications, has a super long battery life. And so the idea is you can take this thing wherever you want and you write wherever you're, you feel inspired. Um, it's also part of this writing process where we really try to promote sort of the, the draft and then edit later in a separate session. So it's really a drafting machine. It does have some very limited editing capabilities. Um, we added arrow keys to the Traveler, whereas there are none on the free write, which is pretty interesting. Um, but that's really it. There's no copy and paste. It's very, very simple. But the idea is that everything that you write is also seamlessly saved on the device and backed up to the cloud. So you can write on, you can draft and then open your document in, in Dropbox, Evernote, or Google Drive and edit it there later. Amazing. And um, so I, I have uh, one question. So I have a very bad back and neck. And so my question is, for those writers, and I know a lot of writers who are, who are like me because they're sedentary or, you know, we've had, I had a car accident, but um, 
is there a way to raise it? So my, I, even on my Macs, I always have to take like a little travel device with me to like raise it up because I can't look down. I have to look up. Otherwise I get really bad pain. So, or like, is that something you can develop? Because I really like the traveler free, the free ride traveler, but I can't until I know that I can look upright whilst typing. So interestingly, you can actually plug in an external keyboard to Traveler. Okay. So you could actually put it on some kind of stand and use another keyboard. I mean, we're sort of limited to the form factor of a laptop, you know? I mean, laptops are not really great ergonomically in general. (laughs) Um, So in that sense, we're kind of limited, but it actually, you could actually do that. So um, you could, you know, bring another keyboard if you, if you had to and um, plug it into the, into the device and raise up the, the traveler and have, you know, the screen closer to eye level and that'd be much more economic. Mm, okay. So there you go. Yeah. I love that you had a solution for that. Cause I definitely threw that one. Uh, uh, or even better, you could just close your eyes and not look at the screen. Well, yes. Yeah. And I can do that cause I don't type it, look at the keyboard anyway, but still you have, I, I have a tendency to look down. Right. That's why I always try and raise, like I try not to work on a laptop anyway, because of that reason. But yeah, I love the distraction free concept. So all right. What is the process? Um, and I'm sure, I am sure there are like 5,000 different, uh, you know, uh, different product iterations or whatever, but, but broadly speaking, what is the process um, of going from initial idea, initial concept to product on the shelves? Yeah. So um, I've tried to explain this to like some of the team members that have joined my team. And the, the way that I say it is like, well, do you want me to explain my way or the right way? <laughs> oh no, definitely your way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my way. Okay. It um, sounds rebellious. <laughs> well, the right way has to has a lot more research and time and money involved. Um, my way is sort of a little bit simpler, in that I think, I mean, my nature is I, I'm coming up with ideas pretty frequently. I mean, that's just sort of something that I do, and you know, I think the biggest thing is like. It has to, the first thing is it has to be interesting. Um, and then I sort of use the filter of time to help me decide if it's really, really interesting. So I will actually write them down, these different ideas. But usually I just, I like, I write it down and then sort of, you know, go about my day and my life. And if something is sort of like creeping back into my consciousness, like over the next month or two months or six months, like to me, that's actually, that's a good sign. Like, huh, like, okay, maybe there's something more to this. And so that's like, it's sort of as simple as that. I, whereas the right way would be to do user testing and, you know, make mock-ups and prototypes and go test out with the market and all these things. I just sort of use time. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it takes longer, you know, because it does, I, I, I actually don't think you can shortcut this process I mean, you can kind of trick yourself also with user testing and things like this. Like, and I, I think that's actually a really dangerous sort of path to go down because you can do all this user testing and, you know, more likely than not, your, your own confirmation bias is going to show through that user testing and be like, oh, this is a great idea. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, maybe. Um, so I, I think, you know, letting time go by, I think is like the most valuable part of that process for me. And then once I've sort of decided like, okay, there's something here, like well, when I need to actually have the time to start working on it. And then usually it starts, you know, it starts like formulating sort of like the basic features um, of a concept. 
I mean, I think, I think for any product to sort of like be impactful, you sort of have to think about like, what are the killer features? You know, not are the, not what are, not what are the nice tabs, but like, what's that one or two things that are going to like really attract a potential customer? And this is like, I, I think this is so critical to any kind of product design. How, how do you get people interested? And so like, it's really from these one or two killer features. And so like, until you have a good grasp of those things, it's really hard to kind of move forward. And then I think the biggest thing is being able to answer the question of like, why now? Anything that's really going to be successful has to be able to answer the question, why now? Because there's a lot of ideas and, and people always sort of say this thing like, oh, ideas don't matter, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't believe that at all. I, I think like ideas are actually really important. I think like you have to marry the idea with the timeliness um, according to the market. And that, that marriage of idea and timeliness is like, that's, that's everything actually. And so, you know, you can do a lot of things wrong from the actual product standpoint, but if you get sort of the timeliness and the right sort of like key concept, right. It, it, I mean, that will carry you through. And so, you know, I try to make sure that I sort of have those questions answered. I put together, you know, then we start, you know, building something like you make some kind of prototype and I mean, we've done crowdfunding campaigns, which is sort of like a really good demarcation of time. We get to put up, like I sort of, you know, put together just enough to get the crowdfunding campaign together. And then we put it out there and see if anybody cares. And um, that's really, that's really the concept. And then assuming that it's successful, then there's a huge process to actually make it, you know, go from concept to, you know, mass production product. And I, of course we're talking about like, you know, physical products right now, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole process to actually like getting the thing made. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I and again, I, I don't know if I'm sort of gobsmacked that so much of your industry relates to our industry or, you know, what's the word, just like completely satisfied or not satisfied, that's the wrong word, but as if I knew that that was the case because, it, you know, so many industries are so similar, but that's certainly how I decide which book to write, which, which one has been with me the longest and still seems, you know, the most exciting or the most alluring. But um, I love what you were saying about time and market. And that is also particularly important for indie authors. I think the one advantage that we have is that books where unlike products, books can be timeless because um, like take, for example, the vampire trends that, uh, that have come and gone and come and gone and come back again. You know, if we write a book, now and there isn't a vampire trend well there's nothing to say in five years time that that trend might come back and i suppose that's the only that that's a key difference i can see with you know um technology is that it advances so quickly that trends trends don't necessarily come back around but that said one of the articles that you wrote that i thought was interesting and I'm, i think it was one of the articles you wrote was that the past is the future when it comes to writing and I loved that concept and I think that ties in really nicely with um what you're saying here I don't know if you just want to explain what you meant um with that I don't know if I do know what I meant <laughs> <laughs> I think you were talking about you know the fact that if you go back to what you know Ernest Hemingway for example was mm. doing he wrote distraction free on a typewriter yeah. and you know that's you the, the future of writing is is the past essentially in terms yeah. of technology yeah I think 
I think when we, I mean, the product was the, the original free write when we launched it was extremely provocative. And I think like in a good way, I mean, we had both like lovers and haters. And I think like through that process, I also sort of came to grips with what it's like to put something creative out into the world, which I imagine a lot of authors, hopefully, <laughs> you know, have to deal with, right? Like you're putting out like your baby. And in some ways, like you don't really want feedback, you know, like, it's just like, it's like, here it is, you know, if you like it, read it, if you don't like, don't, you know, and and the same way for us, it was like, yeah, like if you like it, buy it. And if you don't, don't like, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, no sweat off my back. Like if you don't like it, you just, you don't need to tell me. Um, And I think like, I think I, I started to understand, like, there is a balance in the universe of like, if you want people to love something, there also needs to be people that hate it. And that was sort of an interesting dichotomy to like experience viscerally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like for our product, like, you know, a lot of the, the complaints were like, Oh, like uh, I could use a pencil and paper. Or, like, why do I need to buy this? Or, you know, I can do that or I can do. And it's like, yeah, you can like, by no means are we saying like all other forms of writing are now defunct. You know, like this is another tool. And not only is it another tool, it's actually a tool that's in a very specific part of the, like this writing process. It's not even for all of writing. It's just for drafting. And so, you know, we just said like, okay, this is a specific tool for a specific purpose. And if you believe in this sort of process, like you might find this t- tool useful and you probably will. And, you know, thankfully we have. Um, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, we've had something like a hundred million words have been written on devices worldwide, which is like, that's great. And we've had, you know, a lot of books that now have been published from the device. And I think like, it's because it works. And, and the reason it works is because we sort of take like the best things from the past, which are sort of this like super simple interface and like, you know, remove all the friction from actual writing process and sort of marry it with like modern technology. And so like, it is kind of its own thing. I mean, we, like I said, I think, you know, we tried to really take as much from the past um, unabashedly as we could and just say like, okay, yeah, the past actually had some really great experiences. And I think that's like sort of a, a theme that runs through like my design process. Like I'm always thinking about technologies, mostly that I've experienced, but um, that have somehow like gone away because of like the march of technological prog- progress even though that there's some things that are just fundamentally worse now. And so I always make, I always like use this example of like changing the channel on a TV. Like back when there was analog TVs, you could like change the channel as quickly as you could like rotate the dial. And now it's like, you can count to like 15 before like a, you know, a modern TV like changes the channel. It's like, what is it doing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's fundamentally worse now. I mean, yeah, we have, thousands of channels and we can stream and like everything like that's all much better but like there's just no such thing as like channel surfing anymore and so you know there's going to be a whole group of people that have no idea what what that even is or like why that even why is it called surfing you know it's like because you could literally like cruise across you know these channels and it's like we've just completely lost that sort of experience and i think that there's a lot of different types of experiences that we've lost. And, and so like, I, I really like sort of being able, I mean, I think I, I feel very lucky that I've actually been able to sort of bring back some of these like cool experiences of like 
okay, here's a very simple writing experience, but it still connects to Dropbox. So um, another spontaneous question, sorry, but you're, you're, just, you're just giving me all these questions. I'm so curious about your, your device. Um, so the way that I write now is uh, I use Scrivener. I, and I don't know if you've heard of Scrivener. Sure. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you have. So w- with your device, is it just one document? Let's say if I was using your device and I was drafting and I finished a chapter and I wanted to write a new chapter, but in a different document, like does it have the capacity to have multiple documents? Like can you, or, or is it all one document that then exports up? How does that work? Yeah, you can have unlimited documents. I, I think we have, Internally, there's room for like a million pages of documents. And um, the way that we've done it is we never wanted to have like a file tree. So what we did do though, to have some kind of organization is we made three folders. And so there's like A, B, and C folder. And we sort of let people use them however they wish. You know, it could be like, you know, your book's in A and your blog's in B, or it could be like chapter one's in A, you know, whatever, whatever you want. But within those folders, you can also have as many actual documents as you want. Um, and what's new with the Traveler is we have a document manager. So whereas the Freerite was really, really forcing you all the time to kind of move forward, there's actually in Traveler, you can kind of look at your documents in, in the entire folder, which is new. Um, there's a little bit more self-administering of documents. You can archive, you can shred on the device um, instead of having to go through post boxes. So there's just a little bit more um, self-administration of documents on, on Traveler. But ultimately, it's, it's again, like we're trying to keep it super simple, not give too many places for the writer to kind of like fiddle, mm. um, you know, really just- Or be sw- distracted. <laughs> exa- exactly, exactly. And so, you know, Freerite took that to the extreme. Traveler has a little bit more um, flexibility, but- you know, ultimately, like, it, it's still a very focused writing machine. So as a designer, um, I'm curious, what are the most important tools in your business, like as an entrepreneur, a designer, a product creator? Because I think I think a lot of people that come to um, being an indie author are surprised at the number of tools and you know, bits of software and stuff that we accumulate in our businesses. It's shocking to me, you know, I'm just supposed to write words, but I have all of these tools and devices and bits of software that I use to run my business. So yeah, like for you, what are the most important tools? Um, here's, here's a bit of a oddball answer. I'd say like people management tools. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, learning how to communicate communication <laughs> tools. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think as for me, like, I mean, these products like Traveler, for example, like, you know, it probably takes 10 different types of specialized engineers to actually create it. And so, you know, I'm only one person and my team is not that big. And so we are, you know, relying on other people all the time. And I think like learning how to communicate with other people, I mean, we work with teams in France and in China and, um, you know, how do we coordinate all that? I mean, those kinds of communication tools are just absolutely critical. Um, and so like, it's kind of a weird answer, but I actually think that's probably for me right now, the most important thing is like working with people and learning how to coordinate and, and, you know, yeah, work, work across borders. Amazing. Well, this is always my favorite question. This is the Revel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner Revel. 
I think that, uh, to keep it on brand, I think creating a product that was purposefully limited in features was pretty rebellious. I, I think like coming up with something that, I mean, it really sort of bucked every trend in consumer electronic product design. You know, everything in electronic products is like smaller, faster, lighter all the time. And like that those none of those values were part of free rights design not not even one you know it was like how do i make this like so people can like hammer on it how do i make it so it can be outside like how do i make it so that you know like it lasts a long time so these are like really contrary sort of product values and um i i mean i think it paid off for us but i mean ultimately like we are still small like we're a boutique company we, we make boutique consumer electronics. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, it was like, it was a strange experience putting that, that like, it was a project. I mean, it wasn't even a product. We put that project out and just getting like, you know, kind of swamped with, you know, feedback and people were writing articles about it and just, just the concept itself, you know, this is the end of, you know, humans as we know it, we have to buy this gadget to keep us focused. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> we buy all kinds of things to help with stuff. Like why shouldn't, you know, our focus be something that we spend money on? I don't know. I mean, I think that's like, as we go forward, like more and more what we're going to probably be spending money on. I mean, that's, it requires, it requires our, our active participation. I mean, or else we're just going to be like constantly doling out our, our attention to, you know, Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. And uh, I think I think I love the, the whole <laughs> free right travel a little bit more now because I know it's such a rebellious uh, device. Okay, tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your products and uh, yeah, where they can get a hold of uh, a free right. Yeah, our, our free right products, you know, the free right traveler, everything's available at getfreeright.com. You can check out the free right traveler at getfreeright.com forward slash traveler 1L. And um, yeah, our corporate website is astrohouse.com, A-S-T-R-O-H-A-U-S.com. Um, all of our socials at astrohouse. So thanks so much. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been absolutely uh, wonderful and fascinating to talk to you as well. Thank you also to all of the show's listeners. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Adam Lieb, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Like I said at the top of the show, next week will be me. It will be a roundup of 2021. <laughs> what? No, it won't. It'll be a roundup of 2020, and a look forward to 2021. Some lessons learnt, uh, some things, tips, tricks, uh, some predictions, perhaps, and um, yeah. So I will see you next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review. Oh,